0: I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If this is your first time hearing the show, it's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are, and we want to hear about the educators who've inspired you and the educators in your community who deserve a spotlight. Every educator we have on this podcast, whether a teacher, coach, counselor, or professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. So please, be a part of our show. And tell us about the person who comes to your mind when we say that email us with your nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu today on the show we are bringing you part two of our conversation with dr katie billman if you remember until her retirement during the pandemic she was a professor of pastoral ministry pastoral theology and director of the master of divinity program at the lutheran school of theology in chicago and in our first chat, we had a really heavy conversation about one of her classes, which was called Caring for the Dying and Bereaved. And on this final part, we talk about her retirement and her journey into the clergy in the first place, and then into academia and becoming a teacher and everything she's learned along the way.
1: I remember um, asking my high saying to my high school pastor I had when I was in high school that I thought about. Being a pastor and I'll never forget his response actually. He told me, he said, Well, I've only known two women in my life who I thought could do this. Only two. (laughs) And he and he said, Well, you know, because you know, when you're a pastor, you might go from a funeral in the morning to like a youth group party in the evening and can most women can't navigate those emotional changes. And I just, you know, I looked up to him. He's, he's a pastor. You know, what he said was pretty much, but I should have said, that's the biggest bunch of BS I ever heard.
0: <laughs> Before we talk to Katie, we have another story about one of the most enthralling topics I could think of, standardized testing. Yeah. For teachers and students with spring comes spring break, but spring also means state-mandated testing, and Illinois is considering making really big changes to how and when students have to take these stress-inducing exams. The federal government mandates students in third through eighth grade take these high-stakes tests every spring. Even last year, when many students were just returning to the classroom after COVID-19 forced them to learn at home for a year, students came back just in time to take the Illinois Assessment of Readiness, or IAR. Other schools let students take it at home or even wait until this past fall. And if you think that sounds pretty unstandard for standardized tests, well you're right. It was very frustrating for many students, teachers, and administrators like Sycamore Superintendent Steve Wilder.
2: We'd spent all this time they're in hybrid or remote and then we're gonna turn around and give a state assessment these kids that have been out of school were disrupted for so long.
0: That once-a-year requirement could be changing. The Illinois State Board of Education is considering a switch from once-a-year testing to three-times-a-year testing and an option to test students as young as kindergarten. Many parents and educators oppose the proposed plan and say they haven't had enough input on the process. And critics of Expanding to Three Tests say that It'll increase the amount of time teachers have to devote to test prep. They say it'll put undue stress on students and simply that standardized tests aren't even a good barometer of student success to begin with. Higher education agrees with them. Many Illinois universities don't look at them at all anymore when it comes to admissions or scholarships. Wilder says moving to three tests could actually provide some valuable information for educators if they get the results quickly. One of his major frustrations with the test now is that schools don't see data until the next year when students have already moved on to the next grade.
2: It usually takes a while to get the numbers back, so you really can't use it to inform you know, how you're instructing students.
0: If teachers can't use the results to help their students in real time, what's the point? Wilder says they're required by the federal government to give a sense of school
2: accountability. Are we really teaching students and what schools are performing better than others? And I'm not sure the state assessment is really a a good measure of that, but there are so many other ways to assess how students are performing.
0: That can be through anything from everyday classwork and group projects to other exams schools give students outside of the state-mandated ones. A majority of Illinois schools purchase assessments on their own and give them out a few times a year similar to the proposed plans. Although, some educators aren't certain those tests help academic growth either. For many, though, it's all just too much testing. That includes for teachers, who are often assessed themselves by their district based on how well their students perform on standardized tests.
2: I think it's really dangerous to use that to to really try to measure an individual teacher's effectiveness. So many other variables that play into that. Wilder
0: has been a teacher, a principal and a superintendent in his career, and he says for educators and administrators, there is still worthwhile data to be gleaned from these tests. For example, he likes to look at what percentage of students meet state standards, then drill down to specific grade levels and even specific classrooms and students. But because there are so many local assessments throughout the year, typically the data is just confirming what teachers already know. And one big drawback Wilder sees in switching to another state test is long-term data.
2: Every time you feel like you're getting this longitudinal data where you can track students over 5, 10, 13 years, you can't do that. You know, it, it changes. It seems like it changes every couple of years.
0: It could be changing again, but the Illinois State Board of Education has not presented a timeline of when that might happen. In the meantime, this month, young students are once again sitting down to take their federally mandated exams. Now, without any further ado, my conversation with the delightful and insightful Dr. Katie Billman. You've been retired for what, almost two years now? How, is, how has it been treating you?
1: It, um, it's a learning experience. Uh, I'm kind of extroverted. Uh,
0: yeah, me, me too, if you couldn't tell. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, we just started in, right? We didn't, you know, I thought, Okay, maybe there'll be a break, and we'll we'll say, okay, now we're starting, but we just sort of like, <laughs> that's 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 the way. But
0: like you it. said, off the, in, just jump into the deep end, <laughs> yeah.
1: So um, yeah, so I'm alone most of the time now, and so that's I've been a real learning, I'm learning more about myself and how to structure my days and keep learning. So I'm, I'm trying to learn Italian. And I'm reading a lot. I'm in two different book clubs <laughs> that we read and we talk. But, you know, once once a month and the others uh, about three times a week, uh, three times a month. And uh, that's with former pastors. And the, the other book club is mostly with former academics. So I feel like I'm bringing together the life I lived when I was a young pastor and the life I lived when I was an educator and uh, a formal educator and I'm trying to. I really there are things I want to learn how to do, like reduce my carbon footprint, which is a mm. huge goal for the next year. And so I'm I I haven't quite found a way yet that that I feel I'm really actually contributing to society um, in the way that I want to. And part of that's the pandemic, you know. I, yeah, of course. It's hard. i I'm, I'm more of an in person. Let me go and volunteer somewhere. Not now. I when I write checks, well, that's something, but it's not. I don't feel like tangible in the same way.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's actually my my dad retired like two weeks before the pandemic, Ugh. so he got out right when the getting was good, right? Like, <laughs> just <laughs> just just in time, and it was something that I know that he had thought a lot about and read about and counseled on of, of what retirement means. And I know the pandemic kind of just threw a giant wrench in a lot of that, but it's like, it like forced him to really think about like his hobbies and the things that he wanted to do or just like on a day-to-day basis. And he was like, okay, we have, you know, distance running, he's a marathoner. So it's like, okay, so if we plot this out and we say, okay, so running is something you're going to do pretty much every day. If we're going to be really generous with you, that gives you about one to two hours. Okay. So we, we've made it to one to two hours that we know <laughs> is going to happen every day. And now what else is going to happen?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. But if you're used to a structured life, retirement is, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I have a little, I'm so obsessive. Yeah. Um... <laughs> And so I have a little chart. I'm a, I made a little strip every day of five things that I want to do. I want to practice my Italian. I want to practice the piano. I want to read at least a, half an hour. I want to do yoga. And what's the other one. I'm obsessed with the New York Times spelling bee. I do that. The every smelling bee, really? Oh, I love to, I love word games.
0: I've had a lot of fun with Wordle, and honestly, the biggest part of it is just like I have I've convinced several people in my life to do it. So now there's just like a group chat where every morning you'll just boom, everyone just uploads their scores, and it's just it's a nice way to check in.
1: Yeah, it is. It is. That's, that sounds wonderful.
0: <laughs> you, know, you mentioned the piano, and actually, for me, probably my biggest hobby that i've tried to take on during the pandemic has been uh the piano i've tried to learn how to play the piano and it's been i've i have uh i've loved it but again like i it's been during the pandemic so i have not had a teacher i have gone through a variety of like apps to start off with i've watched like youtube videos about how to play different songs or learning about different kinds of music theory and i've just Found it such a rich and rewarding experience, and it's like I I don't I don't like again like if I had a teacher who knows like the amount of holes that they would be able to fill in like gaps in my education, but just experimenting on my own and trying to dabble with it has been amazing. I've loved it.
1: Oh, that's wonderful.
0: the The interesting thing for me was I I you know I started off using an app that was I think kind of teaching piano in a very traditional way of, of you know, sheet music and playing a lot of classical pieces and things and, like, trying to build your way to being able to do those things. And really, as time has gone on, I've had to think about, like, okay, like, what are my actual goals with this? Like, am I trying to be a concert pianist or do I just <laughs> want to know how to, like, play the songs that I want to play and, and have fun with, like, experimenting with different chords? So I've really, like, you know what, Peter? I, I've really had to think about... Do we actually, you know, like, what am I even trying to get out of this? Yeah. And so I, I've, I've like learned enough where I've, I've been able to consider, okay, I've got the basics down, but really like, what do I even want? <laughs> like, why am I doing this? And that has really kind of opened things up in a new way where I'm just like, okay, I, I'm going to, you know, learn this theory that I think is really interesting and learn how to play songs that I love. And, and, you know, maybe that's my goal with it. That's
1: cool. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Hooray. Have you
0: been playing, have you been playing for a long time?
1: Since I was a little girl. I'm, I'm not no kidding. great, but i can play a variety of kinds of music and i play it's my therapy um music is therapy i like to i love broadway shows and i love um musicals of all kinds and um
0: do you like to play like hymns, hymns. and uh, that play, type of, I've, yeah
1: i've got lots of of hymnals and uh, I, I do like to play hymns but i just as I like Cole Porter, too, <laughs> so I've probably like more Cole Porter than I
0: have him to be lately. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, it's funny. My, my, uh, my brother, actually, he plays by ear. And mostly when I hear him play, I hear him play hymns. And watching someone just, like, get up to the piano and be like, oh, I don't really know this song, but it's something like this. And then just play it. Uh-huh. I... It must be the kind of learner that I am, but that just makes no sense to my brain how people are able to do that. (laughs)
1: Yes, yes. My husband's last church was a wonderful um, multicultural church, mostly Mexican-American, some African-American and older whites. And the musical group was, there were three Latina guitarists and a lead singer and three kind of aged white women like me. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) And two African-American men, the director and the drummer, and Jim, my husband, uh, sang. And the Theo, the, the lead, um, the, the director, didn't read music, but knew he could play anything. Could play, it's he amazing. He could play by ear. He would hear, hear a song. He knew what the chords were. And so when he invited me to be a keyboardist in the band, I'm like, I, I can't do this. I only really know how to read music. But he, you know, he talked to me through things and I would write down, he'd tell me the line of music and I'd write down, okay, F, C, G, you know, and if it was a chord, I'd put the names of the chord, F sharp, P, mm-hmm. e, A sharp, and I'd draw a circle around it, that means it's a chord, and so I finally learned, you know, through that weird kind of way how to play keyboards in that band, but it was I thought I could never do it and it was such a wonderful thing to join in. And I yeah, did what a-
0: was it like being in a band? I'm so I I, oh, oh. I want to know everything about that experience because I, I would love to be a part of something like that.
1: Phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It it's the best thing to make music with other people. Love it. Just love it. It was great.
2: Oh yeah. wow!
0: Yeah, that sounds fin- that sounds fantastic. I would love to be able to do that at some point. Well,
1: especially because you're an extrovert, right? You know.
0: Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like you know, my one of my dad's uh, pandemic hobbies has been trying to learn how to play guitar. So now it's just like my fantasy that at some point, you know, he's going to get good at that. My brother can play the trumpet too, and just I'm going to force everyone into some kind of family band. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. Great. Do it.
0: Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned. Um, that you started playing piano when you were a little, when you were really young. And you know, a lot of people that we talk to, a lot of educators that we have on this show, they like either their parents were teachers themselves, or it was something that they knew from a very young age that they loved to, you know, arrange their stuffed animals and like teach them lessons and things like that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious for you was as education been something that you knew you were passionate about for a long time, or is it something that came later in your life?
1: You know, that's the, that's a tough question to answer. I love school, and I loved my teachers. If you ask me, like, who was the most important teacher in, in your life, I have to tell you 15 people who all contributed <laughs> something different to my life, you know, from Mr. Ramage, who when I would, you know, it was the Vietnam War, um, he, he introduced subject matter, he got us talking about things in the classroom that were happening in the world in our social studies class. I'll never forget what that opened up for me. Like, oh, we're talking about world events in the classroom. This is wonderful. So how is education a public activity? You know, that has to do with the world we live in right now. The teachers who made me memorize things, I love them. A lot of students just hate that. For me, they gave me things I can still say from memory. 60 years later, I can say some of the poems and some of the, you know, the Gettysburg address and things, the preamble to the Constitution. And I think it's the things that we learn by heart that we take with us all our lives. So I love those teachers. Um, you know, there was a teacher who I remember in his classroom was the first conscious understanding I had that life is full of different perspectives and that you can't always trust the narrator of a story. He was reading uh, out loud uh, our English class, Robert Browning's poem, My Last Duchess. And I think in my naivety, I thought whoever wrote a poem or whoever told a story or whoever, you know, that's that, that's truth, right? And the way he read it, you could tell that the the Duke is a sadist, and that he had his 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 last Duchess actually put to death. Oh wow! And I remember the shock of that. That um, and then we read "As I Lay Dying" by William Faulkner, and you know every chapter is a different perspective. And I'm thinking, well, which one is true? Which one is true? You know the realization that there are multiple perspectives. I mean. Oh my gosh, school teachers. I mean, the Shakespeare teacher I had in college who invited us to our home and made, she was like nearly 80, I think, and she was still teaching and she was so passionate about Shakespeare. And she made us these funny drinks in her blender. (laughs) I mean, and and watched Hamlet in her living room. I mean, I I had wonderful teachers everywhere and every stage of education. I, I always had such respect for teaching, but I, I was getting ready to be a pastor, and so that's not a formal, you know, that's not like you have the title educator, but teaching is so much a part of pastoral ministry, so oh, absolutely. What, what I want to say about being in a trajectory toward a religious education, in a religious education and going in the direction of that as I finally became a religious educator is that what I learned was teaching isn't just what happens in the classroom. It's not this thing that's boundary by the walls of a classroom or even the, you know, Zoom. It's, it's the way you live your life. And that's what I wish teachers could have more opportunity to talk about together is the burdens and the joys of that is that everything we do, everything we are teaches, everything. Teaching isn't just limited to the, you know, what happens in the classroom. It's not limited to courses on pedagogy, but it's, it's just, it's, it's a life. It's, a, it's, it's something that infiltrates all, all of life. It's not just this one little thing.
0: I hope that's something that people have learned, especially during the pandemic, right? As like, we're forced to unshackle ourselves from the time and place that we think education happens.
1: Yes. Yes. That's a really good point. I think that's a great point. Um, I don't think students see us as much in the other venues that they, you know, like my son's a teacher, a high school teacher, and, you know, he does study halls now when he's back in school and he coaches yeah, I mean, there's so many different things that are part of being a teacher's life and that we're part of being a seminary teacher's life. I mean, what kinds of conversations do you have in the cafeteria? What, what kinds of committees do you work on with students? What, um, what, what about when it's your turn to read scripture or lead a chapel service or preach? Um, you know, it's all, everything that, that students see you doing
0: you mentioned that when you were young, you were already on the path to becoming a pastor. That was something that from a, a pretty young age, you knew I, or, or well, did it that also come later?
1: The possibility when
0: I was going to ask about that too. Yeah.
1: No, I wasn't. Enough. I remember um, asking my high saying to my high school, uh, my, my, the pastor I had when I was in high school that I thought, I thought about being a pastor and, his, his response, it wasn't, oh, you can't do that. It was more like, well, I've only known two. I'll never forget his response, actually. He told me, he said, well, I've only known two women in my life who I thought could do this work. Well, only two? <laughs> and, he, and he said, well, you know, because, you know, when you're a pastor, you might go from a funeral in the morning. To like a youth group party in the evening, and can most women can't navigate those emotional changes. And I just, you know, I looked up to him. He's, he's a pastor, you know. What he said was pretty much. But I should have said that's the biggest bunch of BS I ever heard. <laughs> 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 but it took. Oh my, yeah. But it, but it took years. It took years to actually. able to say something like that yeah yeah so no i was i i knew i wanted to i think i was so i thought well i'll be a missionary i'll be a social worker it wasn't and and again it was teachers in college that they were saying well why not go to seminary i'll write you a recommendation to go to seminary why don't you go to seminary you know so it was yeah so the world changes right and the things that were true when I was young and even when I started teaching are not true anymore.
0: Yeah. I mean it's it's fascinating to me, even as someone that, that grew up <laughs> not too long ago that, you know, I, I grew up primarily in a Southern Baptist church where for a lot of people that's still not possible in, you know, the year of our Lord two thousand and twenty two, right?
1: I know, I know,
0: I know just bonkers to think about it feels like you're going on a it feels like you're going on vacation to like 1925 or something yes
1: Yes. and i'm sure you have many listeners i mean the a huge um a huge part of the world is only catholic and women can't be priests so it's it's not it's not an unusual thing that women aren't seen as people who can be be pastors or bishops or um, and now, of course, I'm associated with religious communities where women can be bishops and can be presiding bishops and um, can uh, serve in any capacity in the church. But, but you know, there have been all kinds of um, discriminations and they still go on today in other ways. So.
0: And again, what a journey to be able to watch. Like you said, the world around you changed as you were going through all these things.
1: Yes, I mean radically change. I mean, when I was uh, when I started in seminary, it was general, hardly any of us who were on members of the theological faculties had formal training in pedagogy. I mean, the the reigning assumption was at the graduate level, if you knew your subject matter, you could teach it and that students who got to the graduate level would be just waiting for what you had to say. And it didn't take long for that to be totally, I, I, I wasn't, I didn't teach a month before I realized that I had a lot to learn about pedagogy and a lot to learn about teaching. And so some of my best workshops actually, they've taken place between like, the later um, 1990s and through the 2000s, I mean, we we started asking for workshops. Tell us what you do. um, And and then the growing awareness that our race and our gender and our sexual orientation and our degree of able-bodiedness in our class, all these things were shaping the way we taught our subject matter, what subject matter we taught, how we related to students in our classrooms. And so getting up to speed on how all those factors shape the way we the way we teach. Um, I mean, that that was like huge. I mean, that was all happening when I was finding my sea legs as a teacher. And the whole idea that we're that it's not teachers and students, but that we're simultaneously teaching and learning together all the time, that we have as teachers. Have as much to learn from their students as students from their teachers, and how is that a mutual enterprise? I mean, all of that was just—I I was really feel very blessed that I taught in this watershed change period about what what it means to be a teacher and the sorts of things that we have to consider and um, and change and be self-critical about. Yeah, so.
0: Yeah. I saw one of the classes that you taught was about, you know, women's contribution in theology and ministry. I was just curious, like, I, I think we talked about it maybe a little bit at, at the top with the book that you've been reading recently. But I was just interested to hear if you want to talk a little bit some about your favorite, you know, theologians who are women or favorite stories from them. Anything that when it comes to that, that, that you want to share?
1: Oh, wow. Well, there's so many. Yeah you know wonderful women theologians uh, in in the catholic tradition um elizabeth johnson and Catherine lacuna just wrote mm-hmm. some beautiful theological you know really um sophisticated theological books um in new testament my colleague barbara rossing yeah i mean oh dolly in pastoral care um you know, my mentor was uh, a teacher named Christy Nuger, and she wrote a wonderful book on counseling women with a methodology about how, how counseling proceeds from helping people come to voice, you know, to name things with their own language, um, to communicate understanding of what people are saying so that people can hear themselves. Uh, Nell Morton had a Phrase We hear ourselves into speech, that we need someone to hear um, our words and reflect them back um, to us so that we can hear what we think and make corrections and say, well, no, it wasn't this, but it's this. We need that. Then we need help in um, clarifying um, the the choices that we have and the communities of care that will sustain the choices that we want to make. Um, and gaining insight about the, you know, the ways that our stories can be hampered. Um, I mean, there there's just, there's so many. I mean, there's women are writing wonderful things and have written wonderful things and will continue to write wonderful things.
0: Absolutely. One of the last questions I always ask people, and I always say, we might've answered it already throughout the course of our conversation, but I just kind of like the way this is framed, which is just in terms of, your life and education and religious education and everything that we've been talking about. Is there just something that when it comes to being an educator, you wish more people talked about when they talked about it, something that you think is a more significant piece of it than people who live outside of education might realize. Mm -hmm. And maybe it is the, what you talked about about how being an educator is so much more, than what happens within the walls and the allotted times of the class.
1: Yes. Yes. And I would connect that with the, um, the growing, I think, sense of awareness we have about how there are aspects of how we've grown up um, again, where we come from, our racial identity, et cetera, et cetera, how those things, um, shape the way we, Evaluate the way we interact, uh, the subject matter we choose, the things we hold dear, um, the things we don't, that we, we run from as teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to talk about those kinds of things together. And it does have to do with this idea that every, everything we are and everything we do teaches. And that's a burden and a blessing both. And so to be able to talk about both sides of that. Right. It's a
0: responsibility, right?
1: Responsibility. And, you know, especially pastors are very sensitive. You know, they don't want to be seen as holier than thou. You know, they want to be real people and sometimes bend over backwards trying to say, hey, I'm a real person. I, you know, I swear, I, you know. But, oh,
0: yeah. We're cool, skinny jean pastors. We're just like you.
2: Yeah, yeah. Right.
1: We're just like you. And, um, and, you know, I think, you know, it's not about being holier than thou, but it's about congruence. It's about um, our, I mean, all people everywhere, no matter what they do, I think, especially in this world we're living in, you know, we need more conversations about what convictions do we hold most dear? And how are we embodying those in our lives and whatever we do? Um, you know, when I, when I think about what's happening to the environment, the threats that we face, we don't have an indefinite amount of time to say whether our, um, if we value the earth, what kind of life are we going to live that actually gives the earth a chance to survive? I mean, those are, these are really critical questions and um, and I hope in school <laughs> we're, we're certainly having conversations about those things but also you know being vulnerable about how hard it is to make progress
0: yeah what do we believe in and then how can we embody that and what does it say about us right yeah and yeah and what are you willing to sacrifice to, to get that well I think that's I think that's a perfect way to close <laughs> I've had, Just the best time chatting with you. I hope that you've enjoyed the conversation. So thanks so much.
1: You're a delightful person to talk with. Um, So I'm sure you've got lots of people. So that was so much fun.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Teacher's Lounge. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Katie send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu, and wherever you're hearing the podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a rating, share, like, whatever you can do. It really does help us get more listeners and more perspectives on the show. You can subscribe to the Teachers Lounge newsletter to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show. A big thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kindups for the awesome music you hear each and every episode. Thank you to Spencer Tritt for making our wonderful Teachers Lounge logo, and I have been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back very soon with more Teachers Lounge. See ya.